If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. This is episode 176 already. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host, and this is part two of my interview with Andy Barnacle. Andy Barnacle has directed over 300 plays. He was also the artistic director of the Laguna Playhouse for 20 years. He's directed two of my plays, and both times he did a magnificent job. Like I said last week, this is really a masterclass in directing. If you missed last week's episode, after you listen to this one, go back, check that one out. Talks a lot about dealing with actors. This week, we continue to talk about actors, but also the other aspects of directing, namely lighting, costumes, blocking, politics, etc. And it is a Zoom interview, again, I mentioned. So, uh, you know, bear in mind, it's not perfect fidelity, but what's the alternative? So here we go. Part two, my interview with director Andy Barnacle this week on Hollywood and Levine. Well, one thing that you did that I really appreciated was your flexibility. The very first play that you and I worked on together, it's called A or B, and it was at the Falcon Theater. And we had Gary Marshall's Falcon Theater. Gary Marshall's Falcon Theater. And God bless him, Gary. Yeah. Gary was there then. Yeah. Um, but there was a scene that didn't bother me all through rehearsal, but you're in a rehearsal room. And then when it's on the stage and you have an audience and you, you see it performed, it, it occurred to me what was wrong with the scene. And I remember calling you at night, and this was like three days before we were supposed to open, and I apologized, and I said, Andy, I know what's wrong with this scene. We have two scenes, and what we need to do is interlock them and and just kind of make it one scene and ping pong back and forth between the two. And it required 
reblocking. They didn't have to learn any new lines. They were just in different orders, but it required reblocking and changing the lighting and everything else. And I'm sure a lot of directors would have gone, uh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> and you very matter-of-factly said, okay, let's try it. Yeah. And well, did it and, and it worked. And, and I so appreciated your willingness to do that. Now I remember that. And, uh, but, uh, but it was also a world premiere. So, so it's, it's understandable to me that, that there will be things that once you get to a certain point, you go, this just isn't working. We can improve upon this. There's no time when you don't want to improve on something, especially with a world premiere. If a play is already established, you kind of accept it for what it is. And you, you know, you've, you've rented it and it's copywritten. You can't change it. But when you, when you're actually in the process of shaping something, I have no problem with that. And I, I've never been afraid to call an extra rehearsal and go in in the day and, and sort of fix something. You know, the actors might not like it because it's a last minute uh, a new thing for them to learn, you know, more study. But uh, generally on a world premiere, everybody's familiar with that. I, I appreciate you saying that, but I don't think I'm that unusual. If, you know, when you look at a, at a Broadway play that, that has 54 previews before it opens they right. do it every day that's yeah. what they do you know uh, they give new songs to a musical or new dances and the, the poor actors are crazy by the time they open right. yeah i know here in la you know a lot of actors only want to do theater so that they can be seen so that they can get jobs in television and some of them balk at the changes every day and you want to say what do you think is going to happen <laughs> When yeah. you get on a television show, yeah, I remember you saying that about some actors. It's like they, they're they're not reacting well to to script rewrites, and you're like, "Wow, when you get on a on a TV set, you're gonna have this this new color new color page today." That's right. <laughs> you, better, you better deal with it. Yeah, but I, you know, exactly. Yeah, but also if you're talking about a sitcom, at least you know you're talking about a total of how many minutes of dialogue on a half hour sitcom. What's the eighteen? Yeah, about eighteen, something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, that's a little bit different than two hours, or, right? Or, right. Or, uh, Although the changes that you make are from the last day's rehearsal, so it's two pages. Yeah, yeah. you know, the yeah. only time uh, I did this and it was on A or B, we had preview audiences midweek, and as is usually the case with subscription theaters. Uh, as the previews are cheaper, that the audience <laughs> tends to be 80 yeah. and above. Yeah. Okay. And I remember we had our very first preview and there was not a single laugh. Not, yeah. it was just, just tumbleweeds. Yeah. So I went back to the actors during intermission and I said, the problem is you guys are not holding for laughs. <laughs> and and of course th they laughed and they said we understand we we see the audience out there but on saturday night we got a younger audience and all of a sudden it started getting laughs yeah. and i went back to the cast and this was a week before we were going to open and i said to them here's the good news and the bad news the good news is that i got a chance to finally hear stuff that worked and I said, 
The bad news is I also got a chance to hear stuff that didn't. You'll get a flurry of new jokes tomorrow. And I sat up till six o'clock in the morning just rewriting jokes. I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and the other bad news is all week long, the audiences are going to be like they were at that first preview. And then on Friday <laughs> and Saturday, they're going to be like they were tonight. Right. <laughs> so right. you better get used to that too. Yeah. No, is, that is, is the kind of person that goes to the theater on a Wednesday is very different than the kind of person that goes to the theater on Friday night. Oh, yeah. And the difference between Friday night and Saturday night is huge because Friday night, they're tired from being at work all week. Yeah. And they may just stop laughing at a certain point. And Saturday night, they'll laugh all the way through. But yep. then you get to Sunday matinees and they are wild cards because yeah. I've had some of the worst audiences and some of the best audiences I've ever had on Sunday afternoon matinees. Yep. You can't typecast audiences. You just can't. They, they're going to be all over the place. Um, I've had some wonderful experiences. I mean, I thought when we did Going, Going, Gone, the audiences were a little more consistent than they were uh, for A or B because they weren't necessarily subscri subscribers, subscription right. audiences. Mm -hmm. They were people who had read about the play or heard about the play and chose to buy tickets to go see that play. Whereas at the Falcon, there were people that bought tickets for a whole season without regarding what each play was going to be. So they would come to a play sort of suspiciously, you know what I mean? Because they didn't know anything about it other than the blurbs they got in their brochures. They didn't choose to see that particular play. They chose to be part of that Falcon season. And so they had a different mindset than the people that went to the Hudson to see Going, Going, Gone. And that's always been apparent to me for the 20 years I was at the Laguna Playhouse, the kind of people that, choose to buy uh, single ticket buyers when we had an extension of a play, for example, and they were filled only with non-subscribers were completely different audiences. They went there with different expectations and they went there with different interests just to walk in through the door. And, and uh, that's always to me been the downside of having a subscription audience. The upside being you get your money up front so you can produce the play. The downside being you've got people that don't necessarily want to be at the theater that night but they bought their tickets a year ago. So here they are. And they can be tougher nuts to crack than the kind of people that, that come in a, a, all by themselves just to see a play. Yeah, I remember that first, uh, <laughs> that first preview of A or B. When it was over, I was talking to the house manager and he said, you got a hit on your hands here. And I said, <laughs> what are you talking about? He said, he said, they loved it. I said, how do you... How do you know that they loved it? They didn't laugh at a single thing. He said, they came back for act two. For act two, yeah. There's normally an exodus at yep. intermission if they don't like it. So they came back, happen. you got a hit. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you also get the, the walking ovation at the end when they're going up the stairs. Because <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> <laughs> they want to get to their cars so badly. Yeah. You spot one of my pet peeves, which is when actors take a line and for no reason at all, they'll turn it into a question. Oh, and that oh, drives oh, me oh, crazy oh, oh, oh. when they do that. It's, believe me, it's my pet peeve. You, you know, it's my pet peeve. Uh -huh. so why do you turn a statement into a question? And, and, Conversely, why do you turn a question into a statement? They do it all the time. Uh, and I, I, I have a theory for that. Um, I think it's because they don't like to be vulnerable. And if you ask a question, does, does anybody know what time it is? 
implies that you don't know. But since as an actor, you've already read the script and you do know what time it is, it's hard to be vulnerable when you already have the information that you're supposedly acting about and act as if you don't have that information. So I think it's subliminal. I don't think they do it on purpose, but I think it's too easy to say, does anybody know what time it is? And, and, and not honestly ask because you need help. And I think it's a, it, it makes you feel superior to not need the help. And so that's why they turn statement, uh, uh, questions into statements. The other is to take a, a, a statement and turn it into a question that's the one I don't really understand. Yeah. Why are you asking me something when you tell me to get off of your get off of your porch? Get off my porch? What, what does that mean? Is that a question? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> number one, that's not the intention of the line, and no. number two, then you're expecting the person to respond to the question, and he doesn't. Uh, uh, well, a question that he has no response for in right. the script because right. he's been asked a question that he doesn't have an answer for. So he looks foolish. He looks silly sitting there like. I have no idea what's going on here. Right. <laughs> I don't know why they do that to each other. I've never it's understood. also kind of a millennial thing, just in terms of their speech patterns. Well, you know, linguists have been studying these things. They the hollow-up glides, they call them, or, or I don't know. It's just a, a matter of, of insecurity and not being willing to assert yourself when you're making a statement. Uh, and you end up going not being willing to assert yourself when you're making a statement. Do you mm-hmm. me? Is that okay? Is what I'm saying all right? And rather than just going, yeah, I know. What I'm saying is okay. So eat it, you know? Take it. Go with it. <laughs> okay, I have to ask you about the famous barnacle loop. The barnacle loop, that's something I developed when I was directing in small spaces where you could make a make a stage set seem larger if you if you took the path of most resistance for an actor to move from one place to another so if you're stand, you're sitting in the chair and there's a door 10 feet to your left and someone knocks on the door rather than get up and walk directly to the door you get up and you go around the chair you loop above the chair and walk around it to go to the door it, if you if you can make it seem like a natural move it just makes the stage look that much wider. Does that make sense? Sure, it does. It's a visual thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it kind of allows for uh, counterpoint in movement so that you can move this way to go that way and then come back around again. And, and actors, I, didn't, I never named it the Barnacle Loop. I, I don't remember who the actor was, but the actor, an actor named it the Barnacle Loop. Uh, and I remember I was working in Laguna and uh, there was an actress that was working for me and she hated having to do it. She hated it when I blocked her to do this a couple of times. And she was just shaking her head and she really was grumpy about it. And she really hated me, basically. <laughs> so years later, I had a stage manager who had worked with me many times, knew all about the Barnacle Loop, and he told me he was working with this same actress in Los Angeles. And uh, at one point, the director, who was also a friend of mine, he told her, he said at one point in rehearsal, this is years later, he goes, and now I, uh, I want you to do a barnacle loop here. Over, And she was stunned. The idea <laughs> that the barnacle loop was something that everybody in theater knew about. <laughs> and she didn't get. And I, he told me that story. I laughed so hard. He said, your eyes got like saucers. She was like, really? Everybody knows about the barnacle loop? <laughs> well, everybody does now. Everybody does now. You know, I noticed in in your blocking when you would block scenes that you were pretty loose about it. 
you know, you were not, okay, you stand over here and you pick up the coffee cup here. And you, again, you were very flexible about moving around and changing things and that, that sort of thing. Um, well, what is your me, approach to blocking? For me, blocking is not necessarily, I mean, when I was, I, I, once again, it goes, it comes with experience. When I was starting out, when I was young and I was, you know, learning how to direct from textbooks, I would have a floor plan of the set and I would have little toy soldiers or chess pieces and I would move them around in every line and I'd write it down in my script. And then I learned that by the time I got to opening night, it, the blocking on, sta- on the stage had very little resemblance to what I had written down in my book. And that was because I was dealing with chess pieces, would do everything I told them to. And then I got in the room with human beings who had different impulses and had different moments when they felt like moving. And I had to learn to respect that. Again, this is not only just my getting this knowledge, but it's also as you climb the ladder in your career, you start working with better and better actors who have better and better instincts, who, have, who are perhaps better than yours and say, you know, what, I'd like to move on this line, not the one you asked me to move on. Could I wait until one more line? I would go, okay, let's try that if, if that's what makes it. And if I see that clicks with the actor, I'll go, okay, no, no big deal. My pencil has a big old eraser at the other end of it. I'm more than willing to change my blocking. There's a reason that stage managers sit there with a giant eraser and change blocking every day in rehearsal because it, it's a, a, a metamorphosis, not just a thing that I tell them to do. It's got to be a little bit different on television because you have cameras and you have marks and you have people have to be in certain places. Otherwise, they're not going to be seen. But on the stage, there's a little more organic you know, room for actors to explore what they're going to do physically because of the impulse that they're getting from what the script is telling them. Uh, and for me to sort of tell an actor where he wants to move. I generally work with signposts. I get, I get some pictures that I might want to make at certain points in the show, and I'll try to get from one to the other and make sure that they're solid when we get to that point. But, but from one post to the other, I'm going to say the actors have plenty of room to maneuver. And uh, it, it's more like jazz than it is like classical music. Does that make sense? Sure. There's some sure. freedom here. So go ahead and roll with it, and don't think that you're, you're bound by this music just because it's how it's written on the page. Well, one thing in television, we have the advantage that the camera will tell the audience exactly what we want them to see. But in the theater, it's your job to somehow focus the audience so that they're looking at what you want them to look at at a particular moment. Yes. And there's there's a number of different techniques that allow that to happen. For example, if you want them to look at one particular character at one particular moment, you have him or her being the only person standing up when everybody else is seated. You have him or her being the only person moving when everyone else is still. You have him or her facing forward when everybody else is facing upstage. There are subtle ways that you can create the focus that you need based on on, uh, where you want it to be. And, And I think the actors sort of sense that too. Generally in this theater, we, we look at whoever's doing the talking and seldom do we have more than one person talking at the same time. Um, but it's the, it's, the, it's the reversal of what we get from, from uh, television. It's where the television is the funnel, where the, the image is being funneled out to people through the camera. Where on 
theater, it's the other way around. The funnel is in the audience focusing down onto what we want them to see on the stage. And, and so you, you, you learn how to make sure, okay, I need you to have focus here. So everybody else sit still, you get up and walk while you're talking so that, that we have very little choice subliminally other than to, other than to watch you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed once in a theater production, a married couple were arguing and the director had them at either side of the stage and the audience was like watching a tennis match. Yeah. <laughs> you know, their heads were going back and yeah, forth, back bang, and forth. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, trying and, and to follow are, them. It's ironically, I remember learning this many, many years ago, or at least reading about it. There are subtle, other subtle little things is that because of the way our language works, we tend to go to look from left to right. So if you want to start focus, put it on the, on stage right, which is audience left. So the first thing they'll go is look to the left because that's where their eyes naturally want to go because of the way we read. I don't know how authentic that is, but but it's one of those one of those theories that occasionally I've leaned on to say if you need if if I want to really have the focus, have everybody lined up facing stage right and have the actor I want the focus looking at them from stage right, and the audience therefore is looking to the left end of the stage. Mm-hmm. At one, that, that's a, cl- a classic way to give focus to somebody. The other way is to have them be the peak of a pyramid. Uh, you know, a bunch of people on the stairs and one guy at the top is going to get, you know, like a Marilyn Monroe musical number. Right, <laughs> right. Number. That's where the focus is just going to go. It must be Berkeley. You also do it sometimes with, with inflections. Uh, I notice that you have an expression, um, an attack on on a line and when there is like uh, a new beat in a scene that you want the actor to really hit that first word that attack to propel you into that beat it's a it's a when i'm when i'm taking notes i have a my own little sort of quick code and sa means stronger attack on on this particular line uh the, the, the word beat that you used, the legend has it that this goes back to Stanislavski and the, the, the system. Legend has it that when he visited New York in the early 1930s, that when he first arrived, journalists were interviewing Stanislavski, the father you know, of, of all of it. And um, they were asking him about script analysis, which was the first thing that he developed in his system. And he said, well, first you break the script down into little, little beats and then you, you know, analyze them. And the, and the journalist thought he said beats. He meant bits. And the, this, is, this oh, is the legend. Okay. I don't know how true it is, but this is yeah. how it was told to me. And so the word beat became a unit of action that has the beginning, the middle, and an end unto itself. And then, it, then, the, then it's followed by a transition into another unit of action. So I'm sitting in my living room in a play and the telephone rings. I pick it up and I say, hello, that's a beat in and of itself. Okay, that's the answer to the phone beat. You give it a nickname if you have to in the script. And then the next thing that happens is your dog died. Oh my God, my dog died. Hang up the phone and fall asleep on the couch and go cry on the couch. That's the cry on the couch beat. You line up all these beats and you understand where they are. And then when you're watching a run through of the play, it's literally like watching the symphony happen from beginning to end. And at some point it wants to go up and instead it's going down, you pinpoint that moment and ask the actor if they can take a stronger attack at that one point because the play is sort of gliding when it needs to soar. Fascinating. 
It's your, but you've got to know, you've got to be able to know where that is. You can't really know where that is until you've seen them all in order, so, which is why you have to be patient. And, you know, I can anticipate maybe in the second week of rehearsal that it's, I can tell that this beat's going to need a little help here. But until I see the whole thing sort of taking shape, I'm going to, I'm going to look for those places where it wants, where I want it to go uphill instead of downhill. That's interesting. And now let's get into tech because right. you also have to deal with designers and lighting and costumes and props. And there is so much attention to detail that a director has to have. And those things are so important to an actor. How the actor is dressed can change his entire performance. Oh, yeah. The, the, my, my most feared moment in any uh, process of any play is when I go to the first dress rehearsal and it's early in the morning and I, or in the afternoon, I walk into the auditorium and the leading lady standing on the stage, she goes, Andy, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know it's going to be a long day right there. Um, you know, does this play make my ass look fat? You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think the best thing you can do to, to prepare yourself for that is to have your play in place so that you don't have to worry about the actors during that tech. And you can concentrate literally on giving yourself over to lighting and, and scenic and, and set changes and whatever else might have to happen. Costume changes, all that sort of stuff. You got to remember that the designers have been working on their own for all this time while you've been in the rehearsal room dealing with the actors and you've been spending six, eight hours a day with the actors for weeks and weeks and weeks. All of a sudden you go into a room, the designers are there for the first time. They haven't really, they might've come to a designer run through, but that's really the only part of the process that they've been familiar with. And, and they get whatever information they need there to do their work. And then they have two days to do it and, or one or two days to do it. And so you really have to give yourself over to them once again, as you climb a ladder in a career, you start working with better and better designers and it becomes easier for them to do their work. And everybody sort of understands that this is a, a, a small amount of time we have to do this. Um, some plays are more difficult than others. I remember in Going, Going, Gone, that, that baseball shoot. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a stunt where a foul ball goes up to the press box and <laughs> destroys one of the reporter's computers. Yeah. And we had to rig up this Rube, Rube Goldberg-like contraption. Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> Where baseball came down a slide all the way from the back of the auditorium, bounced into a thing and then, then catapulted onto the stage. And right. it worked about six times out of ten. I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a wooden slide. But I, But I think that, there's always something like that in every play. Um, you know, you, 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 this, there's usually something that's going to cause you a problem and you just have to sort of fight your way through it. Um, but lighting design has become a lot that here's, here's something I remember that's how old I am. When we started out, the lighting designers had to make these little sort of plots on these little manual light boards that they were going to have to maneuver on every light cue that the operator was going to have to maneuver on every light cue. Now they put it into a computer and, and, and it takes a little more time in rehearsal for it to come to shape. But once it's done, the guy in the booth just pushes one button when it's time to, to go to the next cue. He doesn't have to worry about where all the lights are going to go. The computer does it for him. So that was a, a learning curve for me 
transiting from the old manual light boards into computerized light boards where I'd look at the light and I'd go, what are you doing? You've been working on this for five minutes. Come on, we got to get going here on this one cue. And he's going, I'm programming it for the computer. Once it's in, you'll never have to worry about it again. I would go, oh, okay, I get it. And that, that took me a little while to understand it because my, my own heartbeat was, my heart rate was going at a different pace than that. Um, and with scenic design, the, 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 the better the quality of the set, the doors shut. They don't bounce open again when you when you close. Uh-huh. You know the the hinges mm-hmm. and locks and the floors don't echo and you know things are are just better done. Uh, it's it's a little bit easier to take. Costumes, uh, I would say, is the one place where I just kind of have to give it over to the experts because I. I I don't quite understand, and if you know me, I'm just sort of a slump. I, I don't quite understand <laughs> why people, how people get so obsessed with how they look in their clothes. I, you know, that, that's never. I'm a clothes horse, I guess, just naturally. So it's never affected me. But uh, but but women especially spend a lot of time you know, every day in their natural lives, making sure that their their clothes are are what they want them to be. And so you just don't hand a woman a dress and say, here, put this on and go out in front of a bunch of people tonight. It doesn't work that way. They, they, they take it a little more particularly and understandably. So at that point, I would, I always side with the actor. If I, if, if there's going to be an issue like that and an actor doesn't like their costume or really feels stupid, like you said, they, it's important to them how they look when they walk on stage. I'll say to the designer, you know, I don't care what you do. I just want him or her to, to feel good about themselves when they go out there. And some of the designers take that not so happily, but nonetheless, they don't have to go out there every night. The actor does. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So finally, advice to young people, because everyone says, I want to direct, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so to all those millions of people who want to direct, yeah, I'm a butcher, but I want to direct, uh, <laughs> what would be some of the things that you could offer as suggestions? Well, it's going to be a while before we get a bunch of people into auditoriums again. Yeah, anyway, that's true. You know, yeah. But, uh, I, or directing I, films or yeah, I, anything. I'm one of, the, one of the ones who, who agrees that uh, the, the best way to learn how to direct is to be an actor first. I mean, I've had, I've had good directors who were never actors, um, but they're rare. I think that learning how to direct theoretically isn't, isn't as good as learning how to direct by acting and acting in a number of plays and dealing with a number of different directors so you can get a sense from an actor's viewpoint what it is to, to be a, a good director. And I know I'd been in scores of plays as an actor before I ever directed, and I'd had lots of different experiences with lots of different kinds of directors from amateur hacks to gifted university professors, and, and I saw what the difference was between a good director and a bad director and how they were able to communicate with actors, which is probably the most important thing that they have to do as sure. I mean, everybody has opinions about what a play means or anything like that, but we all have strong ideas. 
but how you communicate with actors is the most important thing. And, uh, and unless you've actually been an actor and had your feelings hurt or been insulted or, or been respected, you, you don't really quite know what the difference is if you're only at one end of it. And that would be my first advice to, to somebody who wants to be a director is to get plenty of experience as an actor so you don't break people when you go into the room. And that's so, so you don't hurt people. And that would be the, the, the first thing I would say. The other thing is, I would say, is understand form that know the difference between, uh, you know, a neoclassic tragedy and a Neil Simon comedy. Understand what playwrights are trying to do from different eras. Study some history of, and literature so that you, you can tell the difference between a 19th century American melodrama and Arthur Miller, you know, and, and recognize what their similarities might be as well um, so that you know where the playwright lives in terms of the world they're living in and the world that they're trying to write about. Um, so there, you can't, it's just not a matter of being in control. It's a matter of not being out in front of a production and yanking it toward you, but getting behind something and helping to guide it forward, you know what I mean? Until eventually you let it go and it takes care of itself. Okay, one final question that just occurred to me. So you continue to act from time to time. Um, You were in a a play reading of mine. You were very good, by the way. (laughs) And so what happens when you're acting in a play and someone else is directing and you're going, well, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. I I really, I I really have enough experience now to just, I try to become a really simple guy when I'm acting. I I do. I try to become a simple guy. And yeah, I, sometimes they'll, they'll say something to me and I go, nah, ain't right. But, but then I remember what it's like when I say something to an actor and I, and I get that look. (laughs) And so I I try not to give him that look. And I go, Okay, I think I can understand that. The only time I that I get in trouble a little bit is when I don't really understand what they're saying. If I don't get it, you know, sometimes that's when I'll say, "Wait a minute," and they'll look, look go, "Why is this bothering you?" I go, "No, I'm, I'm just trying to understand. I don't quite understand what you're trying to tell me. I will gladly do what you need me to do, but I'm not quite sure if I know because you might they they might be being hazy or trying to be nice or something or whatever it is. Uh, I, I I prefer the direct direction. I, I prefer that that succinct direction. Could you pick up your pace here and move over there and sit on this line instead of that one? I go, oh, yeah, that I understand. No problem. Uh, so I, I don't get into debates with directors about stuff unless they're making a, a, a calculated mistake about something. They tell me to do something that's flat out wrong. And I go, yeah, I can't do that because he's about to come in the door. And, oh, oh, you're, yeah, you're right. That happens. You know, right. we all jump the gun sometimes and right. say silly things because we, we get an impulse. Uh, but But for the most part, I actually recognize and respect the way I've been treated by actors over the years and make it a point to show that same respect to directors. So if you give a note to an actor and the actor kind of box, for me, my first thought would be, oh, oh, then I gave him a bad note. It's my yeah. fault. I always say, yeah. no, I didn't make myself clear. I, I, that's what I, I, I think I didn't express myself properly. I've, you've heard me say that. Mm-hmm. I, th- I don't think, I've, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to say something. I'm, I don't think I'm expressing myself exactly right. Uh, help me understand what I'm trying to tell you right here. <laughs> because right. That's, that happens too. I mean, sometimes I get an idea and I just don't know how to put it into words. And if I can't, if I can't actually explain what I'm asking an actor to do, I generally let go of it. If, if, I, if I don't feel strongly enough about it to say, Here's what I mean. I usually go, you know what? It's not important. Go ahead and do what you were doing. Uh, because if, if it was important to me, I, I would have the words for it. 
um, other than just I'm losing my mind, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also quite possible. Which is possible, yeah. <laughs> Andy, this has been great. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. I've, I've appreciated working with you over time, and I hope we get to do it again. Absolutely. And there you go. The end of my two-part interview with Andy Barnacle. Was I right? Did you learn a lot? Wow, fascinating guy. And like I said, a terrific director. And our thanks again to Andy Barnacle. Also, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Bruce and Jason Miller. We will join you again next week. You want to write me? Go ahead. Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. I will write you back. Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Stay safe out there. Talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and the Vine.